Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking with Javon McCormick. Javon is the CEO of Scribe Media, a multi-million dollar publishing company that was recently ranked the number one top company culture in America by Entrepreneur Magazine. His best-selling book, The Modern Leader, sold out on day one on Amazon, and Ernst & Young recently named him Entrepreneur of the Year. While Javon has achieved unbelievable success, he's also had to overcome many obstacles. As a son of a black pimp father and a white single mother on welfare, his childhood and adolescence were mired in physical abuse and discrimination. But Javon refused to play the victim and used his difficult upbringing as a springboard to success down the road. Since then, he has shaped himself into a role model for millions of young people worldwide. He inspires them to see the obstacles they face as opportunities and shows them what's possible in life when they adopt that mindset. In today's conversation, we discuss the power of personal responsibility and ownership, why obstacles are opportunities in disguise, and why people are the most important asset in any organization. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Javon has a special gift for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. He's sharing a digital copy of the Scribe Method book. This is the exact blueprint Scribe has used to help over 2,000 authors write their books, including Javon McCormick and 22 other New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling authors. To get access to this gift, visit justindonald.com forward slash 111. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with Javon McCormick. All right. What's up, Javon? So glad to have you on the show. My man, Justin. What's going on, sir? This is great. Well, I I'm so thrilled to have you on because your book is the most recent book that I have completed, literally completed it today prior to our session. And I'm just excited to get to know you even better. I, I mean, your book was incredible. And I just hope more people read it. It's, it's information. It's, it's counsel. It's stuff that needs to get out into the world. Man, full transparency, the book caught uh, caught me off guard. It actually caught caught all of us off guard. It sold out of Amazon on day one and ended up hitting what number three on the Wall Street Journal Journal bestseller. Caught us all off guard. No, none of us uh, expected that, especially the book selling out uh, on, on Amazon. So it's humbling, flattering, uh, and and you know, and also a bit proud of it too. Oh, that's awesome. I, I feel like I have uh, hearing that. 
I've got some moments where, because I'm an author as well, and I wrote The Lifestyle Investor, and we also did the same thing. And we're out, and people are trying to buy it, and people couldn't get it. And I'm freaking out because I don't even know what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> like, I don't even know how to get more books. I didn't even order them in the first place. And it's a really good problem, but it's still a problem that needs to be sorted out. But I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you're able to do that and glad the books had so much success. Oh, for sure. And the beauty for me is I'm surrounded by a group of people that know how to handle the book selling out and what we need to do to print more and get it there. So that that's the uh, the beauty for me on that one. It's nice. You work for uh, Scribe. You guys produce, create, help people put their thoughts into written form in a very cool way. I've recommended a bunch of my friends, one of my closest friends in the world, Dane Espigard uh, and the Dream Machine. He worked with you guys and a bunch of my other friends have and you guys just do incredible work. It's it's great to see. My man, I, I appreciate it. It's, gosh, what, we've worked with over 2,000 authors now. Uh, we're, we're seven years old. Man, it's it's been an incredible run. Matter of fact, we're, right now, we're literally in the middle of an office expansion. I know most people are shutting down offices and, and workspaces, but we're actually uh, expanding our offices and workspace. And so, yeah, man, it's been, been a great run. And we... we the next three to five years, you'll really see us go next level to where, where the company goes. I love it. Well, I'm friends with one of your partners, Tucker Max, and uh, the, the original founder, co-founder of, of Scribe. And so I remember when he was pivoting, transitioning from being an author to starting this company, I'm like, what are you doing? You've got like, you're like crushing it in the writing category. Like some of his stuff's like just crazy. Like, I mean, you sit there and you say, could this really happen? This is nuts. And then he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm totally changed. I'm, I'm not like that anymore. I'm starting this company. I'm going to help people write books. I mean, what a big shift that is in the first place. And then what's really neat is to see how that company is scaled and then bringing you in to run it and all the things that have happened since then. I'd love to hear some of your experience with some of this uh, before we get into some of your childhood and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I was actually the president of a software company when I first met Tucker and I set out on the journey to write a book for my children. I was never interested in selling any copies. I was doing it as a legacy piece for, for my children so they would know my background, where I came from, so on and so forth. And I, I got introduced to Tucker. Uh, Tucker had come over to the office and we're in this big conference room at, at the the software company. And as we're wrapping up, he says, man, you, you've built an amazing company here. And I said, man, no, no one person ever builds a great company. It takes a, an incredible group of people to, to build a great company. And he said, hey, as you're going through our process, will you give me feedback on your experience? So I said, yeah, why not? And so I get my first email from what was then Book in a Box and now Scribe. And I said, hey, you still want feedback? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, this is good. Keep doing this. I go, this is broke. I don't know who thought of this. Don't ever do this shit again. And, and he goes, you got, you got all that from an email? I said, yeah. And he said, would you sit on our advisory board? Yeah, okay, why not? And then he invited me to an executive meeting. And the next thing I know, Zach and Tucker, the two co-founders, were sitting at Starbucks and they offered up the, the opportunity to be the CEO of the company and offered me equity in the company. So literally, and, I, and I, I've told this story so many times, but it's the truth. I sat there when they, they offered it up and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, okay, I've been the president 
of a software company and I can't write code. And now I can be the CEO of a publishing company and I don't know an adverb from an adjective and I can't spell. And I remember saying to myself, God bless America, I'm in. And, and so <laughs> here I am, man. And, and, you know, that was, they were about 13 months old at the time. You know, they were really a startup. So we're, we're seven years old. I've been here for six, six of those. And man, we've done... From, from a people and culture perspective, we've been named the number one place to work in Austin, the number two place to work in Texas. Entrepreneur Magazine named us the best company culture in America. And then for me, I'm still wondering how this happened. Uh, last November, I was named the best CEO in Austin. And then Ernst & Young, EY, about a month ago, named me Entrepreneur of the Year. So it's been a hell of a ride. It's been great. And like, like I said earlier, you know, 2,000 authors, there's 115 people within the company. So it's, it's been awesome, man. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and what I love is that your story of how you got here, it's littered with adversity. I think most people experience some form of adversity. I think you had very extreme adversity in some respects. and really just at least from my perception you know an atypical childhood i'd love to hear more about like what kind of defined you i mean when i when i was reading modern leader and you were talking about how your dad was a pimp and i was like you got to be kidding me and that you were like involved like you were you would ride along and that you had exposure to these women that he was communicating with. And like, even at a young age, you're formulating like, hey, I wouldn't treat them like this. I would treat them better. My dad's missing this. He's missing the boat. I could create a competing business and put him out of business because I would treat these women with respect. Man, it was. And it's interesting. I'm going I'm to pick on a word here for a second. So right now in our country, we weaponize the word privilege. And specifically, we've weaponized the words white privilege. And, and we've done it in a negative way where if you come from a two-parent home and you got to go to college and your parents are still married and you you were upper middle class, we've almost looked down upon you. Oh, well, you were privileged. And like, that's a bad thing. And for me, privilege is only bad if you don't use your privilege to elevate others. So why I start with that word is, yes, my dad was a pimp. He put women on a street corner. They sold their bodies. He took every dollar. My mom was one of his, his prostitutes, and I grew up in a world of chaos. I know things about this country that most people will never experience. What's key to what I just said is that, too, is also a privilege. And because of the privilege I was able to receive in that chaos, I ha now have a deep responsibility, not obligation, deep responsibility to go back and share what I have learned uh, with the communities of, of where I come from. So, so again, we've weaponized the word privilege, but there's great privilege in, in my, my childhood. I, I grew up in chaos, understanding how to organize chaos, how to overcome adversity, to build resilience, what some people call stress. I don't see a stress. So it's my childhood truly was for me a privilege because the things that I got to see, learn, understand, overcome, deal with, 
priceless. Yeah, I mean, that's such great perspective, Javon. I feel like most people probably wouldn't show up with that type of perspective. I think it's a lot easier to play a victim than to say, hey, what's the gift in it? Like, what did I learn in this situation? What's going to make me better as a leader? And that really has been your MO since kind of day one, since you realized that you have a voice that resonates with others. And even just the story of just the simple concept of your name, I'd love for you to talk about what it was like first growing up using the name Javon, but then changing it to JT for a period of time, and then getting back now today to the roots of Javon, where, you know, your original name. And I think there's so much to unpack here. I mean, I was very moved and really just, I would say that you had a profound impact on me just hearing that story and the way that life shaped around something as simple as a, as a name, right? And I'm going to go back to, to what you said there for, for a second. It's another place, you said victim. And was I victimized as, as a kid? Yeah, you know, I was sexually molested from the age of six, seven, eight years old. One of, one of my dad's prostitutes used to, to force me to perform oral sex on her. And if I didn't do it right, she'd slap me in the face, punch me in the head and tell me to do it right. So was I victimized? Yes. But as I got older, what I realized is you can't change the past. You know, I, I can't change who I was born to. You know, my dad was a pimp. My mom was an orphan. I, to this day, don't know where my last name comes from. My mom got it in the orphanage. We have no clue where, why, how we have this last name. So I've never been one to play the victim card. Oh, why me? Why, why did this happen? And you see this as well in our country. We, we've had a, a massive drop-off in two what I find to be very pivotal words, accountability and responsibility. It's always someone else's fault. It's a, you know, we, we blame other people. It's, it's never, and, and for me, I just take accountability and responsibility. And, and the fact is, okay, I can't change the past, but I can change the next hour, day, week, month, and year. So I'm going to focus on what I can change versus on, oh, my dad was a pimp. This isn't unfair. My parents were never married. And, and, and so I don't get caught up in victimhood, if you will. And, and you know, to, to jump forward towards what you, you asked about my name. Yes, my name is, is Javon McCormick. And, and I'll, I'll go right to the story of it, man. When I was trying to advance my career, if you will. I, and this is old school, man, I'm 50. So this is early 90s. So when when I was trying to get on people's calendars and make, make my cold calls and drop off resumes, man, I could not get a call back. So one gentleman, white guy, answers the phone one day and he says, hey, how did you get a black first name and an Irish last name? And keep in mind, I just said, I don't know where my last name comes from. So the fact that he told me my last name was Irish, man, I lost, I was like, sweet, my last name's Irish. I didn't know that. And, and so I was so excited to find out my last name was Irish. But when I hung up the phone, what, what jumped out to me was, oh, okay. They're looking at my first name, Javon, and that's why I'm not getting callbacks. So my full name is Javon Thomas McCormick. And so that day, right, right after I hung up the phone, literally within an hour, I said, okay, I'm going to go by JT McCormick because no one will know who that is. The next week, Justin, 
oh man, I got I got callbacks, I got appointments, I got on people's calendars, and I can't tell you how many times I showed up at someone's office and they're like, JT Moore? And I was like, yes. They're like, oh, you're not who I expected. And you know, and you're standing there like, well, who did you expect? And, and so, <laughs> but what was interesting is I had gotten in and and I realized, wow, okay, the JT McCormick thing worked. Now, I was both, it was bittersweet. The sweet part was, sweet, I got in. The bitter part was, man, I had to edit myself just to get a damn interview, just to, to, to get an appointment. Come on. And but but I kept the name. I kept JT McCormick throughout my entire career up until two years ago, right after the the George Floyd murder. And I remember watching all the things that were going on after the George Floyd murder, specifically the, the stupid ass virtue signaling, you know, we, we blackout Tuesday on social media. Like what, what does that do to progress anything and bring change? And Justin, you and I both know this and so many people were only doing it. So they didn't get called out for not doing it. And, and so then what were we arguing about? A syrup bottle. A damn syrup bottle. Like what what does that actually change? And so, but actually what what really jumped out to me, there was a, a an article I read, and it said that there were only at the time three Fortune 500 black CEOs. How is that interesting? You know, who are they? So I go and I look them up, and it was Kenneth Frazier, Roger Ferguson, Marvin Ellison, and and as a bonus. The wealthiest black man in America is named Robert Smith. And so immediately I smiled. I was like, oh, four very ethnic free names, if you will. And it hit me right there. I said, oh, whatever you're not changing, you're choosing. And in that moment, I realized, oh, I'm choosing to continue to be part of the problem. And I said, okay, I am going to reclaim my name and I'm going to go by Javon McCormick. And again, I didn't do it for me. I built a, a, an amazing career as JT McCormick. I actually did it because, like I said, I was part of the problem. I continued to edit myself to, quote unquote, fit in. So I wanted every Ravante, Laquanda, Lucretia, Jesus, Rosalia to see a Javon from my background with the GED made it to the CEO chair. And, you know, yeah, I'm not a Fortune 500 CEO, but we, we've got a few accomplishments. And, and, you know, the whole goal was maybe one day, maybe one day when you enter the business world, you can work next to a Javon and not just a JT. Mm, that's powerful. It's, there's such a sadness there that that is the reality. I mean, it's, it's great that you can figure out a hack, but it's a shame that you need to do that yeah. to get ahead, to like get the edge. and you know, you have firsthand experience of that. And, you know, I know that you spoke in your book about really just, you know, the Fortune 500 recognition started back in 1955. And there were no black CEOs for 32 years. So 1987 yeah. was the first time that there was a black CEO, right? That speaks volumes to change and progress that needs to be made. Well, think about that for a second. I've had so many people ask me, because I continuously talk about the, the playbook is broken. The playbook is broken. It, it's a broken playbook. 
you know, the, the corporate America, the business world as we know it has been built on this playbook, but this playbook is now broken. And I've had so many people ask me, they go, okay, well, if the playbook is so broken, why did we run the playbook so long? And I say, well, personally, I'm convinced the same people who created the playbook also created the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> because for so long, it served a group of people who fit the playbook. So if if it was working for those individuals, why would you need to change it? But what's happened is, and in my opinion, it really started to shift and show itself right after the recession in uh, 07, 08, 09. You saw a shift come and it's just broken the way this playbook has been built. It's an exclusionary playbook that does not welcome everyone. And if you don't fit the playbook, you don't know the rules of the playbook, you don't understand the playbook, you don't speak the language of the playbook, it's damn near impossible for you to get in. And so you're referring to the old playbook, but there's also a new playbook. And and the new playbook is something that you and really your team, your really the culture of Scribe has embraced. And I'd love to know what that new playbook looks like. Well, so it's interesting. I'm going to take a little, little poke at you here, Justin. We actually don't call it a playbook. And the reason being is, my book, Modern Leader, it's a little tagline we put in there. This book is not a playbook because leadership's not a game. And I rubbed some people wrong when, when I use this comment. There are over 20,000 books, leadership books, with the word playbook in it. And I asked the question, can you truly be a leader if you're following a playbook? And what you're seeing right now in our society here in America is that right now, I don't care where you fall. We can go Warren Buffett, who's in his 90s, all the way down to the 22-year-old startup founder. There is no one walking the earth right now in our society who has ever experienced all of the things that we're going through right now at once. Now, Warren Buffett has seen racial tension. He's seen the Vietnam War. He has seen high interest rates in the early 80s where they were 17, 18%. He's seen, you know, in inflation. He's, so he has seen all of these things actually happen. I mean, think about this. He's even seen Roe versus Wade come and go. But none of us, none of us have ever experienced this all at once. So what's happening right now, especially when you mix in the virus, you mix in diversity, you mix in how we're, we're choosing where to work. There's no playbook for it. So you've got a lot of what, what I would call playbook leaders who are just stumbling all over themselves because they do not know how to operate because there's no playbook for this. The, the old playbook doesn't work. So, so directly to your point, I'll start with this. It, it, scribe, you hear so many companies say, oh, yeah. And I give them, I applaud them openly admit and say, yeah, you know, we, we've got, we've got a diversity issue. We, we've got a diversity problem. And, and I applaud them. Good, good for them. Great. At least they're, they're owning it. The first step is admitting it. Great. But here's what's interesting. They'll say they have a diversity problem, but in the next breath, they will literally say, we only hire culture fits. Think about that. 
If you're saying you have a diversity problem, but you're only hiring culture fits, do you not see your problem there? And so one of the things with us, we don't look for culture fits. We want culture ads. You know, we, we want people who are going to add to the culture. And uh, to take that a little bit deeper, it does not matter who you voted for. It does not matter how you identify, if you're transgender, if you're gay, if you use pronouns, what your race is, who you voted for. None of that matters. Are you human? Are you willing to uphold the values, perform in your role, drive results? If you're willing to do those three things, welcome. So we've what we've called a culture of welcome, not acceptance, not tolerance, not belonging. Belonging is this new hot word that they're they're tacking on to the end of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. The reason why I'm not a fan of belonging is because it implies someone doesn't. But a culture of welcoming, we are going to welcome you in. And when you're here, we're going to continue to welcome you. Yeah. And I think that goes along with something that you talked about where a lot of what maybe happens in the past in the hiring process is you have a resume and you've got certain things on your resume. Maybe it's the college you went to or your past history. But a lot of people kind of just, I guess, heavily weight those things over maybe the experience someone has in another industry or maybe the work ethic someone has that you may not see, you may not be able to figure out necessarily, but maybe someone's worked at the same job for a long period of time. And maybe someone's moved up that ladder there in a different industry. And I I like your take of, hey, let's see, like, do they share the core values? Is this someone that could excel? They don't have to have gone to a certain college. They don't need to have been in the industry. Are they a hard worker? Will they fit in? Will they give their effort? Do they show up in integrity? Well, let's give them a chance. Let's interview them like anyone else. And let's see how they shine during the interview process. Totally. Amy, you know this right now. Here's one thing that companies could start with right now. Go to your your job descriptions, your career description, and look at the roles. And then ask yourself, does a person really need a degree for, for that role? Think about this. If right now we're hiring for an assistant project manager and you have a liberal arts degree, the hell does that tell me? Nothing. And take this a step further. So I, I have four children, eight, seven, five, and three. So right now, my kids are incredibly blessed that if they want to go to college one day, it's already paid for. So they're good. If they want to go to college. So when I say this, because so many people are going to think I'm attacking them because they have a degree and I don't. No, this holds true for my kids. And I'm going to say it to them. If my kids go to college, okay, and their role is to go to class, go to library, study. And they will graduate with no student loan debt. They just get to go to school. They don't need to hold a job, whatever. They just get to go to school and get their degree. What the hell does that tell me about my kids? Nothing. That is glorified high school. The only difference is mom wasn't there to wake you up each morning. So because you went and got a college degree that your, your parents paid for and you don't have any college debt, you didn't have to work through school. What does that tell me about you? That you went to class? Well, if you graduated high school, it kind of tells me the same thing. You went to class. So when you look at a resume, you got to ask yourself, do we need a college degree for this role? Now, for us, we're in the process of hiring for a CFO. 
yeah, I kind of want that person to have a degree, have experience in the role as a CFO, but we're hiring an assistant project manager. What's a degree going to so so ask yourself as a company, can we teach, coach, and mentor this role? Because so many times, think about this, Justin. Even if the person had a degree, even if they have a little bit of experience, are you still not going to have to teach, coach, and mentor them into the role within your company? Yes. So why not interview, open up your candidate pool, and and maybe you get to interview someone that comes from my background of just chaos. I tell you what, a lot of those chaotic backgrounds are masterful at organizing chaos because it's what we had to do. We, we grew up in chaos and so we know how to organize it. So I would say that's one place where companies could start right off the bat is just really ask yourself, do we need a degree for this role? I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the lifestyle investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I used this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash M-H-P, and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors... Join me in my mobile home park masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. I think that's great. And, and by the way, I think a degree is becoming less and less relevant just across the board in, in so many industries. I'm going to share this and there are probably going to be some people that don't care for my opinion on this, but I'm going to share it anyway because I don't think that college is what it used to be. I don't think that the level of education is what it used to be, but I also don't think that the jobs and the careers and the opportunities that people are going into, that they're going to experience, that 
you're getting that training in college, unless you're specialized. There are some specialties. If you're going to be a doctor, if you're going to be a lawyer, right. if you're going to be, you know, you know, th- there are definitely specialties where I think it makes sense. But to the masses, I think college is pretty irrelevant. I actually hope my daughter doesn't go to college. It'll be her choice. But I think that you can gain way more skills just working with someone that has experience, having some sort of an apprenticeship. I think you pick up more bad habits than good habits in most instances. And so I I don't know, like the the trade-off there of like the bad habits that you pick up, this experience, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not convinced today that college is even necessary for the majority of careers that people are going to pursue. I mean, I I totally agree with you. You know, uh, people can say what they want about Tucker Max. Tucker said something to me that really jumped out to me one time. And keep in mind, again, say what you want about him. Tucker went to the University of Chicago and also Duke Law School. And so when it comes to academic credentials, he's got them. And he said something to me. He goes, man, the best thing that ever happened to you is you didn't go to college. And I had spent so much of my life wanting those college credentials. And I'm looking, I'm like, what? And he said, here's why. You didn't get clouded by all the bullshit they teach you. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I, I was like shocked. That was the first time anybody had said that. But to your point, you truly do have to look back. And I know for me, some of the greatest lessons in business did not come from, obviously, I I didn't go to college. And I asked a lot. We've got a ton of people within our organization that have Ivy League degrees, Stanford, UT, you you name the, the, the big known school. And I've asked them this. So when you were in college, did they teach you impeccable attention to detail? And people look at me like, no. I go, did they teach you professionalism? No. And so it's interesting. Some of the, did they teach you punctuality? No. And so some of the greatest lessons that have served me in the business world, you don't even get when you you get a degree. So again, I'm not knocking it. I'm like you. If my kids choose that they they want to go to college, hey, God bless you. And dad will, will pay for it. But I'd rather pay for you to start a business. <laughs> yeah, I for sure would. And and that's, you know, something that we're working on right now with different entrepreneurial opportunities and, and exposure. I mean, I, I think that I learned, there's very little that I use from college. I actually think what I learned in college was how do you do the least amount to get the best result, right? So like maybe I became resourceful in the fact that I got pretty darn good grades hardly attending class and doing way too much social stuff and things that just today I say, gosh, you know, yeah, it was a good time. I don't know. I don't know if those are great choices. I wish I would have done it differently. And I think it was a worse influence on me than if I had just started a business, if I just been someone's number two in their business or whatever, like just getting hands-on experience at a young age, because I was hungry and I was moldable and I I was eager for that opportunity, but what was in front of me was like the path of least resistance to get good grades, but do as little as humanly possible. And by the way, I succeeded masterfully at that. I don't know if I should be proud of that or be, be disgusted by it. Hey, you succeeded masterfully and you have the uh, piece of paper to, to prove it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I just think it's not, a degree doesn't, outside of some specialties, a degree is just not what it used to be. And I, have learned a lot more in uh, 
really just even interacting with people that are doing the things I want to do or that know the things that I don't know. Yeah. So I like your take on it. You know, it, it was interesting with your book. So I listened to your book. Uh, I did the Audible version, which uh, was narrated by David Goggins. And I remember when I first learned about him, I was reading Jesse Itzler's book, Living with a Seal. And I thought that was great. I was cracking up. I was like, this is unreal. And then I learned, you know, well, you learn that David Goggins is the seal. And then yeah. just this crazy, I mean, just an awesome story. But then when I read his book, Can't Hurt Me, I was blown away. And he, in his book, did this little Q&A session, like a podcast, after each of the chapters. And I said, yep. that's cool. I'm going to do that in my book. And that was really the motivation for me to do the same thing. So I've got a Q&A, like a little podcast session in between each chapter of my book, just like you do. And yeah. I really enjoyed hearing you and David talking. I'm curious how you met him and how you figured out or decided that he'd be the right fit to read it. So as you may know, so we published uh, Can't Hurt Me. So Scribe Media published uh, Can't Hurt Me. So we we had the honor to be the the company that he selected when he chose not to go traditional. I mean, he's been very public with the, the story. He, he got a uh, I believe like a $350,000 offer from traditional to do his book. And when you go traditional, essentially they, they own your ass. They, they own the rights to your book. Yeah. You got to the, you got the advance, but you get crumbs on the back end, 10 max 15%. So David said, Nope, I want to own my own story. Not going to do it. And he said, I'm not going to go traditional. I'm going to publish it myself. And his agent dropped him. People told him he was a fool that. And so that book is one of the best-selling memoirs uh, of all time. And so he believed in himself and he invested in himself. I, I don't say bet, I don't gamble. And so what had happened, that, that book, oh man, coming up on four years ago uh, in December is when it first published. No one expected that it was going to do what it did in the, in the first couple of weeks. And so we got caught flat-footed. David got caught flat-footed and we needed to print a ton more copies uh, of his book. So I'm on the phone with a printer that's up in uh, Minnesota the, the day before Christmas Eve, trying to get this, this book printed and shipped out. So I go up to the printer the day after Christmas. Uh, and so when I'm there, I, I take a picture of David's books coming off the printer and, and I send him a picture of it. And we kind of hit it off from there because he, he appreciated the fact he's like, damn, it's day after Christmas and you're up in it making sure this book prints. And so so from there, uh, I actually got to spend some time with him. We've worked out together multiple times and that's brutal. <laughs> I'm um, sure. Yeah, there is no, I said this to him, one does not prepare to work out with David. You either work out with David daily on a consistent basis, which there is no one that gets to do that, or you just go in and do all you can to finish the workout. Now, now I'm very proud to say I finished my workouts all three times, but damn, it's, uh, he had us doing this thing called five and tens. You do five pull-ups and 10 push-ups nonstop. So he, he does five pull-ups gets down and do does 10 push-ups and why he's doing his 10 push-ups, I'm doing five pulls and we just keep going around. You do that nonstop, no water, 45 minutes. 
Oh, whoa. Oh, and, and as soon as we finish, then he said, we're going to do uh, weighted lunges. And it's just, yeah, working out with David is some different, uh, excuse me, that's some different shit. And, and so, yeah, one does not prepare. One only attempts to finish. And so uh, we, we hit it off. It's been great. He's genuine. What you hear is who he is, but very private, but hell of a guy. I, and so, yeah, I was honored that he he wrote the forward uh, to my book. And so, yeah, it's I can't say enough about him. I'm I'm a huge fan. We 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 have some similarities on our backgrounds and some of the challenges we went through and, and things of that nature. So, very very much hit it off with him. Well, I feel like it's very fitting for you guys to partner up on this because his background is uh, just chaotic, very similar yeah. to yours. And I mean, his book, when it came out, that was my favorite. So I didn't read it in December, but I read it uh, in either January. I think I started in January and finished it in February. And it was my favorite book for the year. And I just loved it. I told everyone, you know, I knew about it. And I did a bunch of the workouts from Living with a Seal. And I was just like, holy cow, how did like, this is crazy. Even just a simple like pull-up workout is just nuts. So yeah, I just have so much respect for everything that he's been able to endure and then rise above. And so it was cool hearing your story and hearing him share it as he's narrating what's going on with you and your childhood and how you rose up and how you figured out how to elevate every level wherever it is. And it's neat. It's really a masterpiece what you two have been able to do. Oh, it's crazy. You said that. So one time I, I'm out with him out of his spot where we're working out and we did back to back for, he, he had had, I don't know, several weeks before he had knee surgery. So he wasn't running back to running yet. We did back to back 45 minute soul cycle sessions. Man, one was brutal and and we literally did them back to back there was there was a 10 minute wait in between each one oh my god and just whoo yeah he's a that's a different man right there no kidding well something i thought was cool so you know some people may say oh my goodness what kind of lessons could your dad as a pimp taught you like there's so much bad stuff or negative stuff one of the cool things that I liked is that he took you to the nicest neighborhood and gave you this idea of what it could look like. And now today you live with your family in a gorgeous gated community and have been able to provide the thing that he pointed out to you that I assume became a motivation for you. It's interesting. I'm big on what's possible. And follow me here for a second. So right now, uh, Chicago, the city of Chicago is so bad. They've nicknamed it Chirac. And they've got more murders there this year than any other place in the country. And so think about this for a second. So you've got children growing up in, quote unquote, Chirac, poverty, murders, incarceration, drugs. And think about how simple of a concept this is. So if I'm a child and I'm growing up in this environment, where do I even learn that I can be a forest ranger? A forest ranger. Forest rangers make like 40 grand a year, not a high paying career. But what if we were able to tell these children, yeah, here's what a forest ranger does. They're out in nature all day. 
the fresh air, the peaceful environment. Like, where do these kids even get to learn that? So why I share what, what's possible there is my, my dad, he never said a word. I don't know if he was driving through for him. I don't know if he was driving through for me because there were, there were no words spoken. But at 10 years old, he drove me through uh, River Oaks in Houston, Texas, incredible neighborhood, 10, 15, $25 million homes. And some of these homes were bigger than the damn housing projects I was growing up in. Come to find out one family lived there. And so I remember at 10 years old, I, I did not know how, didn't have a plan, but I said, okay, I'm going to have one of those one day. And it was all because my dad showed me possibility in, you know, how, how am I supposed to aspire to become something when I don't even know what's possible? And, and so I'm a big all about what what's possible. I don't ever want anyone to introduce me when I'm coming on stage to, to speak as a motivational speaker. I'm not looking to motivate you, but I do want to show you what's, what's possible. It is possible to come from my background and still achieve your dreams and goals, create your happiness, create success for yourself, whatever that may be. But yeah, it's sad because in my opinion, as a kid growing up in these low-income neighborhoods, we knew what a food desert was because there's no grocery stores there. But we don't know what a financial planner is, what a wealth advisor is. We don't even know that there's a corporate tax attorney or a mergers and acquisition attorney. But we all we know is that there's the a court appointed attorney that sucks that <laughs> to, to try to keep you out of jail. But yeah, where, where do you learn what's possible? So to your point, yeah, I'm, I'm huge on being able to show people what's possible. Yeah, that's incredible. And since we have a lot of entrepreneurs that tune in and listen to this podcast and that watch this podcast on YouTube, I'd love for you to share one of, I, I thought one of the greatest ideas that you discussed in your book for like creating culture and creating retention and an environment that is stress-free was this idea of the emergency fund where you just basically equipped people with knowing that they don't, you don't have to use this, but I want you to know that you've got $1,500 that you can borrow at any time that you might have some emergency, something may happen. I just don't ever want you to freak out because this is here. And I'd love for you to share that. And I, I hope that more entrepreneurs take this idea and kind of create a methodology in their business around it. I think it's brilliant. So, okay, Justin, again, you know, I got to poke at you because I'm, I'm big on words. Although I got a GED, man, but I'm intentional with the few words that I know. <laughs> so you said retention, retain. Man, uh, we, we don't use that word. Here's why. Look up the definition of retain or retention to keep possession of. I'm not trying to keep possession of anyone. Yeah. So, so we don't look to recruit and retain. We look to attract and provide, meaning we want to attract great people and then we want to provide them with, with great pay, uh, a great culture, uh, fulfilling work. So we want to attract and provide, not recruit and retain. Now, to your point about the emergency fund, I had read an article that said that 45% of Americans don't have a spare $400 in cash in case of an emergency. 
Now, growing up the way I did, my mother and I never had to spare anything. I don't even know if we knew what the word spare meant. So it was when I saw that, I thought to myself, that's no way to live. So how how do we help with, with that? And I figured, okay, let's create an emergency fund, meaning if, if something happened, someone could come borrow $1,500, no questions asked. And, and then we set them up, they start paying about 60 days later, and they, they pay it back on payments, interest-free. And the, the whole goal was, think about how many people drive around day to day or and think, Oh man, if something happens, you know, I don't, I don't have a money for, I don't have money for a flat tire. You know, what if my, my car breaks down or my, my kid needs uh, something. And so my goal was how do we take that stress off of uh, the people we serve and support here at Scribe? Now, Justin, you know, this, there's always going to be one negative ass out there that's going to critique. And so someone hit me up and said, Oh, well, if you, you paid your people more, you wouldn't need to create an emergency fund. Well, the average salary of our scribe members is $77,900. So I won't even say I nicely push back. I slap that and, and say, no, it, it's still putting something in place that is a good thing for people to have in case of an emergency. Um, and, and it's just one of those things that you know that's there just in case. And the irony is, at the time of writing the book, only four people had used it. So it's yeah. like this opportunity for so many people. And hopefully anyone who needs it uses it. But the reality is a lot of people don't use it. But just the peace of mind to know that it's there can help people feel safe and secure in, in their career. So you know it right there. And for me, that's part of the old broken playbook. Like you said, it's the, the, the peace of mind to know that, that it's there. So let's go back a little bit and talk about the old uh, broken playbook. You know, again, I'm 50. I was, uh, I came up in corporate America where you left your home life and half of yourself, if you will, at the door. Don't bring that shit into the office. Don't, no, no one cares. No one wants to hear about it. And I find that just just so limiting because, you know, we've got 115 people. I'm more than confident someone within this organization has experienced something someone else is going through. Divorce, single parent, a loved one with, with some type of terminal disease, some type of addiction, debt, someone looking to get married for the first time. So my attitude is, what if we were able to share those things with one another and connect with one another and, and have a sounding board with each other on, hey, how did you work through being a single parent? Hey, um, you know, in a true example, one of our scribe members was $30,000 in debt. He and his wife were recently married. They want to have children. They want to buy a house, but they knew they needed to get out of debt. We sat down together and we built a plan nine months later, completely out of debt. Now, all that money that they were putting towards the debt, they were able to put towards a house, bought, bought their new house. Now they have two kids. And, and so my whole point is, and you and I both know this, how many people each day are walking around with mounds of debt and no clue how to get from up under it? No clue that they can lower their student loan interest rates. No clue that they can lower the interest rates on their credit cards or consolidate their credit cards. And again, what does this go back to? What's possible 
and you don't know what you don't know. Mm, That is powerful. Well, you've built an incredible life for yourself, but more important than that is you're bringing other people along with and helping them to create amazing lives through the impact that you're having, the education, the opportunities with Scribe, just to work there, to bring people in. I'd love for you to share a few things. Number one, how do we learn more about you? Number two, how do we buy your book, Modern Leader? Number three, how do we learn more about Scribe for anyone that wants to write a book or anyone that's like, I didn't think I could write a book. I dictated my book and then filled in the gaps later on. And it was actually really fun because I don't consider myself an author or a writer like that. I, I didn't sit down and write. I've never done that. But it was really fun to walk around and talk about ideas in my head and then put it in place and then have people interview me and ask me really good questions. And so, yeah, for anyone that's unsure whether you want to write a book or if you have the ability to write a book, with the right coaching and guidance, truly anyone can write a book. Yep. And so I love all the things that your organization offers. So tell us about how to find more about you, how to find more about Scribe and, and how to get access to Modern Leader. So Scribe Media, it's easy. One, go to scribemedia.com. Every FAQ you can possibly think of it is on there. Tons of success stories, how people have utilized their books, what they use the books for. Uh, so you can find out anything you want on the website. Myself, that probably the best place to find me is on LinkedIn. I find it to be the most professional of the the social media uh, places. That, but I, I got to share this with you. So, I, unbeknown to me, I have a TikTok presence now. Uh, so, <laughs> so many times throughout the office, they'll video a conversation that that I'm having. They'll ask me a question, and and they have always got cameras rolling in here. So they started cutting up this footage and posting it on TikTok. Well, unbeknown to me, I think I got like 53,000 followers on, on TikTok now. And, and all it is, is it, I call it this shit Javon says. And so my opinions, and, you know, of course, some people agree, some don't, but, you know, I learned at eight years old, everybody ain't gonna like me. So I'm not going to spend the, my life trying to get everybody to like me. So yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, TikTok, man, it just seems so weird to say that. And then the the book itself, you can find it on Amazon or you can go to uh, modernleader.com and you can find it there as well. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Javon, for spending this time with us today. This has been an awesome episode and just love learning about your story and all the cool things you're doing. And I just want to wrap up with really the closing remarks I have after every episode, which is this. What's the one thing you can do, the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom and living a life that you truly desire on your terms, not a life on default, but a life by design? Thanks, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who would benefit from this episode, would you mind sharing it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all resources mentioned, visit www.lifestyleinvestor.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor. 
This podcast is being made available exclusively to financially sophisticated, high net worth individuals capable of evaluating the merits and risks of investments. The material presented in this podcast is not intended to be investment advice or to recommend the purchase or sale of any security, nor is it intended to be legal, accounting, or tax advice. You should consult with your legal, tax, or financial advisor in connection with any material discussed on this podcast. Past performance is not indicative nor a guarantee of future results. Certain materials discussed on this podcast may have been prepared by third parties, which have been obtained from sources that we believe to be accurate and current. However, we make no representation or warranty as to the accuracy, completeness, or currency of such materials.